welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor, and this is going to be a Journal Club episode. The article we're using today is a chapter from a book, Extraordinary Partnerships, How the Arts and Humanities Are Transforming America. And the chapter is by Holzer and Keller, and it's titled, Why Science is Not a Recipe, Expanding Habits of Mind Through Art. Now, in this book chapter, the authors describe how they used art and poetry to enhance student learning in science. They put forward a case that there are many similarities between what artists and scientists do. As an example, they identify that both poets and astronomers observe, notice, describe, make connections, and identify patterns. But, where the poet would describe and communicate using metaphor and analogy to connect with emotions, the astronomer might instead focus on precise, systematic description and explanatory or predictive theories. They conclude that developing skills through artistic pursuits like noticing and describing details in a painting can also help develop student skills in scientific investigations. The authors also describe how poetry involves a poetic sensibility, that's the ability to describe things which are difficult to put into words. Meanwhile, scientific work is supported when one has a physical intuition of the subject, that's an understanding formed through direct experience. And both of these characteristics, the poetic sensibility and physical intuition, are mutually informative. If you develop yourself in one of these fields, this enhances your practice in the other. The authors round out their chapter with uh, this quote, We have identified ways to begin teaching habits of mind through which students realize that they need not distinguish themselves as a science person or an arts person. Rather, to understand and live the full richness of human experience, these ways of appreciating our surroundings must be seen and taught as complementary for all students, regardless of their primary interest or focus. Here with me to discuss this chapter are Paul, Melissa, and Charlotte. Welcome to the show, everyone. So, Paul, welcome back to the show. You've been here before. Could you give us um, just another quick introduction of who you are? Also, in your sort of teaching, do you tend to lean a bit more arts, a bit sciences, or a bit of both? So, yeah, my name's Paul. I am learning manager at London Wetland Centre, uh, which is part of Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. And, I mean, I've got to be honest, I do lean very heavily towards the science. So next we have Melissa. Welcome to the show, Melissa. And again, as this is your first time on the show, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And again, do you lean arts, science, or a little bit of both? Thank you for having me, Victor. Uh, My background is actually in anthropology. And anthropology is often, it's usually called the most humanistic of the sciences or the most scientific of the humanities. So I think I, I fall pretty down the middle. In terms of when I'm educating, I think it depends on the audience. So Maybe I skew a bit towards the sciences just because of the nature of where I teach, um, which is at the museum. And Charlotte, again, welcome to the show. So um, again, do you lean a bit more arts, science, or a bit of both? Thanks for having me here, Victor. Um, So I'm a science educator at the Natural History Museum. So obviously have a bit of a scientific skew there, but my background was in archeology span for my BA. And I've since been an actor and artist for a number of years, um, freelance and commission based, and then kind of skewed my career into the heritage and went back to what I studied. So again, a bit of a hodgepodge, but I think I do see the world a bit more with that artistic lens. So let's dive right into the subject, I guess. 
this book chapter is talking more about science education than about environmental education specifically. So I'm curious, we've all kind of been in the field at a bunch of different settings. What's your sense of where environmental education tends to sit in terms of between arts and sciences? Uh, let's start with Paul. It all depends who you talk to, but I think in the minds of a lot of schools, it's it's science because because of the curriculum links. Obviously, it, it all links into biology and, and geography and that sort of thing. So um, I think most teachers would see an environmental education school trip as as being linked to to the science and and geography areas that they're they're studying with the uh, children having said that there are some teachers think more in a more cross-curricular way and try and link things together they're interested in local history um we even once had someone phone us up because they're studying the river nile and we're a wetlands and that's kind of like what's next the river nile so could we do something for them so this actually reminds me of uh, when we one of the half term projects we had at the museum um, when we were trying to emphasize the impact that global warming's having on the seas and the oceans and the wildlife that live in in those oceans and um, we did this uh, sort of big uh, montage of lots of coral polyps and the idea was to um, make the children um, use the tops of egg cartons as the coral kind of outside and then do a little polyp sticking out the top with lots of stringy bits um and that was a really good kind of visual i think key for children and families to be like oh this thing that i've created and which you know looked quite cute and i'm quite fond of and is nice colors is in danger and so i think you art can be very useful as a kind of um tapping into tap into those emotions in a way that i think science can glossed over so yeah i think definitely agree with paul it may, o- makes obvious sense to link that kind of um line of work with geography and biology but i don't i think art can be used skillfully as well and melissa what are your thoughts on where environmental education tends to sit nowadays like charlotte and paul i definitely see it um teachers come in with the expectation that it's a science um you often hear them I like the quote that you brought up um, from the article because you hear teachers say a lot of the time, okay, now we're in the museum, you're scientists, and they immediately categorize and and label the kids. And so sometimes that's quite intimidating for them because there's a set of expectations that come with that. But I will say more and more, I've been an educator for 10 years at zoos and museums. And I think the more time that has gone on, the more I see more arts brought into the education process, which I think is is a very welcome change. I think it, it's, it invites a, a wider audience, which is really nice. I think that environmental edu- education has moved a lot in the last maybe 30, 40 years. When I think back to what I re- can recall of environmental education back in the 90s, and when I look at what it seems to have looked like back in the 80s, I think probably our arts, or at least that way of, of looking at the environment was probably a lot stronger And it feels like in the last 10, 15 years, a lot of environmental education providers, at least outdoor education um, providers, I think they've tried to really professionalize and that's tended to make them go towards the sciences because I think people maybe see it as as like a harder subject. And also in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a really big push in education generally um, towards the, the STEM subjects, you know, science, technology, uh, engineering, mathematics. Oh, I think that's quite, that, that's quite a good observation. It's quite indicative about 
the way that people can get quite snobby about art subjects because it's sort of perceived as soft, but there's actually an awful lot of skill that goes into being an artist. So it is interesting that STEM is always held up as this, we must get children into STEM against everything else. And the other thing with STEM is people don't often think of environmental education when they think of STEM. They always think of the engineering and mathematics and technology. So they don't think broadly around the S bit at the start quite so much. I think almost from the outset, once this emphasis on STEM came in, I could see within the education community a move to include arts in it because, you know, all the people in the arts felt really strongly they needed to advocate for it. So you'll also see some education programs advocating STEAM instead, which includes arts within there. Looking at the paper, was there anything that really resonated with you from it? Um, Melissa? Yeah, one thing which I briefly mentioned before was just about the, that categorization of you're a scientist or an artist. And in, in my career, I've seen so much overlap. Um, you know, I actually did my degree in America, and there you have to take a variety of classes. So even if you want to be an archaeologist, you still need to take art history or you know, geology. So you kind of get more of that. Um, and since moving to the UK, I've, it, it seems more siloed to me, and I don't know if that was just because I was in grad school, but it seemed even with the undergrad classes, it was you very much, you're, you're one thing or another. And I see that in the attitudes uh, when the children come into the museum, you know, they say, oh, I'm good at art. And, and they say that as an excuse that they will not be good at the science lesson that you're about to deliver. Um, so I found that over and over again. And if you can dismantle that, I think um, all of a sudden you see kids really stepping up and feeling like there's a place for them in that lesson even if they're not great at mathematics, they might, they, they might still have that aptitude and interest in science, even if they're an arts person. I, I don't think that they're as separate as people think. I think that you, like you mentioned earlier, there's so many of the same skills. And I found that in anthropology because I studied um, the biological side. So it was very systematic and methodical, um, but you needed that humanities background to understand why you were looking at what you were looking at. Yeah, similarly, Melissa, I think I've maybe <laughs> fallen victim to a similar type of pigeonholing with the UK um, education setup because I, I went specialised more in the humanities stages because I generally preferred them. Um, so I, that was a kind of distinction I had to make by the age of about 16 what, in terms of what GCSEs I chose. So that kind of limited me greatly. I think we all did yeah, we did do science in GCC as well, but then obviously in the A-levels, um, that got even more narrowed. And I remember being so jealous looking at the American like education system in terms of the, just the huge variety of modules you could do. Because I wasn't, I think I was, tr I had a meeting with my head teacher and I tried to do about five or six A-levels because I was like, I, want, I don't want to give one up yet, you know. I went into um, my degree because I thought it was a little bit of a best of both worlds because it did have the, the um, options to do the more, as you say, biology-focused modules. I did tailor it in the history of art, but was that because I'd already mentally pigeonholed myself from the age of about 16 in terms of where I was tailoring my education? Or was it actually because I was better at them or I liked them more? I don't know. So yeah, mm. I, I did enjoy that. I think I took it as a bit of a, oh, thank you. Because, you know, I think I'd identified as an artist for many years. So reading that article, it was like, oh, I suppose you can be a bit of both and that's all right. 
Yeah, so I, I found that um, even in anthropology, the way our school broke it down, you were cultural and linguistics, if you wanted more of the humanities side, and archaeology and um, biological anthropology were more on the science side. And then they break it down further between, you know, are you, are you digging? Are you doing the arts of archaeology? Or are you going to do um, the biological side, which is analyzing animal bones? So it, 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 I do think there's a lot of pressure to kind of figure out which type of person you are. Um, and I really appreciated that about the article saying it doesn't, it doesn't actually need to be this way at all. I thought that's quite a freeing sentiment. Along with this main article, I also gave you guys a, a bonus article to read, which was called Humanizing Science, Awakening Scientific Discovery Through the Arts and Humanities by Rebecca Kamen. And again, uh, a link to this article will be in the full show notes. But in this one, it's about, she's mainly an artist and talks about how she took inspiration from the various scientific organizations that she kind of partnered with. She became um, the like artist in residence at a few different places. And one of the things that she mentions is that when she looked back at ancient scientists, or even not that ancient, like Renaissance scientists, a lot of them were also artists. You know, the research that they were conducting, they also were needed to illustrate, to communicate what it was that they were finding. And so you find in a lot of these old, the great explorers, the things that went out and explored and described things for the first time, they were also often doing like amazing drawings of what they found in order to make recordings of it. Um, and so I think that's really important to remember that sort of between these two papers, it kind of highlights is that this division between arts and sciences is really a modern one. If for that, like hundreds of years, there hasn't been this distinction. Paul, was there anything in particular about this paper that resonated with you? Having worked for natural history, is everybody familiar with this? There is this model, uh, describe, reflect, and speculate of these different stages of interpretation. And the idea is that reflection and speculation actually, you know, they're the higher levels of thinking. But the human brain is very good at reflecting and speculating on things and drawing connections and all the rest of that rest of it what it doesn't seem to be so good at is stopping and actually describing and this paper actually sort of details a way of teaching using something that i possibly would never have thought of as someone who's a science educator of using this idea from art of actually looking carefully at things to actually train people to do that describing which is so important for for science and that children find particularly hard. Yeah, if, if I can jump in there, Paul, I completely agree. Because um, uh, when I was doing some career adjustments and changes and thinking about what I actually wanted to do, um, came across the field of natural historical illustration and people who specialize in that sort of artwork and that kind of illustration. And I think that's a kind of discipline as a perfect overlap between science and art, because you do have to use those really keen observation skills, but have the technical ability to translate that into an illustration that's recognizable of whatever you are drawing. Um, and I think that just kind of highlights how important art can still be in the scientific world, but the fact that such an industry still exists. You know, we have high-tech HD photos at the touch of a button, but, people still think it's worthwhile and more information can be conveyed and carried by a stroke of a pen or a stroke of a paintbrush. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's, it does show you that there is a place for uh, art and science. Absolutely. I, that always makes me think of whenever I'm looking at identification guides for 
books or flowers, insects, anything like that. I always prefer illustrated ones to photographs. And that's because of when you are an illustrator of something that in some ways a photograph almost captures too much detail. And when you're illustrating, you are curating that image. So you're choosing it, you're picking out what are the key characteristics and then you're putting those to, to paper. So it really highlights what are the key things to look at. Whereas when you're looking at a photograph, you know, if there's a background involved, like that can be distracting. You're looking at all these different like individual hairs and also you're looking at um, an individual. Whereas when you're looking at an illustration, what the artist has done is almost created like an ideal form of this. It's like a, an idealized version of what it is that you're looking for, looking at. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, that artistic perspective can bring a, a very different kind of clarity. The authors describe as this process of getting that group to stop interpreting what it was they saw and to just like slow down and start just describing like, what colors do you see? What textures do you see? What shapes do you see? And then eventually, after they've done all of this describing work, then the educators allow some interpretation in. And they found that when you went through that process, the kids could start to see these new patterns and details that they hadn't noticed before. And it's because they hadn't taken the time to notice them before. And I think that was a really good and also practical takeaway from this. Um, so let's move on to ideas on bringing more arts into environmental education. Like what do you think the role of arts is in it? So we've, we've talked a bit about how it can change your perspective. Do you think it lends anything else to environmental education? Getting, getting people to reconnect with nature and, you know, getting people to slow down and notice things and getting them to appreciate the natural world for more than just a sort of categorization standpoint um, might help to build more, more empathy for the natural world, more understanding for the natural world in ways that are not the usual ones when people think about, you know, bird watching and uh, botanizing and uh, identifying insects, entomology. Yeah, I, w I would agree. I think um, art's going to be really useful in terms of converting people who aren't necessarily as on board with, you know, fighting this fight against climate change. So I don't know if you've seen the picture of the little seahorse holding the um, uh, earbud, the plastic earbud, because that's not going to decay for, you know, however long. Um, so I think those kind of photography is going to be useful in terms of driving home how important and how dire this situation is you know if there's actual photographic evidence of you know the ice caps melting of a sad polar bear i think those kind of visual things that will really um create some sense of emotiveness to this problem i think will actually be really useful to trying to make other people stand up and take notice of it yeah and i would um i, I agree with that completely with both of what you said paul and charlotte um but I think uh, one of the, the biggest challenges of climate change is just getting people to care, especially if they live in areas that aren't on the front lines of being affected by it. If you tell someone they need to save the oceans, but they live in an inner city that's, you know, 100 miles from the ocean, I think it's hard for them to make, make that connection with their role in, in nature and protecting the planet. But when you, art can be so personal. And I think that many times, when people are, whether they're, you know, looking at a photograph, taking the photograph, looking at a picture or drawing the picture, immediately you make a connection that maybe you don't make if you're just in a museum full of objects that don't have like a, a tacit meaning to you as an individual. And I think art is so helpful in, in 
drawing those connections because you see over and over again so many passionate people working to you know to save the planet and to protect wildlife and to really promote this issue um but they say time and time again we are speaking to to like-minded people 90 percent of the time the people that are coming to listen to our talks already have some interest or some awareness that there's a problem it's really difficult to bring other people on board that that don't come from a background where they know much about it or or just don't feel that they're in an environment that is really affected by it personally so i think art is, a, is such a great vehicle for bringing it closer to home for for anybody um and I'd, I'd say the other thing i think uh that is really powerful with art is just making museum collections accessible um to to people with all different uh abilities learning styles and abilities to learn so you know someone doesn't have to have a ton of knowledge about you know the history of bees when they come into the museum but they can sit and draw a bee and um, especially when you talk about send and you know making programs um, available to all audiences I think art is so going to be so instrumental with that yeah sure. definitely Melissa I, I was also um uh, yeah I think an art from an outside might be more accessible than science because if you know someone like me has felt a little bit alienated from the scientific world possibly because of my um education system or it just does have that almost like ooh spooky science feel i think if you ha can look at a picture and get some information and get a kind of response and a feeling um, that's going to be so important for those kind of people that might look at a scientific article and not want to read it with that like knee jerk. Mm, no, I'm not clever enough to read that response, which I think unfortunately does affect a lot of people. I think that can that will be a really useful, useful end result by implementing art with these kind of um, discussions. Yeah, because of course, art, art is just another mode of communication, isn't it? So if you feel intimidated by the scientific mode of communication using lots of technical language, really specific language, then one of the various forms of art might have more resonance with you, whether it's looking at a painting, reading a story, watching a film, it can all hit home. And, and also there's what, again, they mentioned in the article, this poetic sensibility, right? There's something about in the arts, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on connecting with emotions and and actually often scientists will shy away from that right they want to be objective mm -hmm. and so objectivity to some people anyways can also mean not being emotional um, which is something that i think is is changing there's a lot of recognition now that actually you can't take that kind of thing completely out of the picture and also it can be really important in paul what you said in terms of getting people to to act on things um, Paul, did you have any uh, something to add there? Oh, I, was, I was just going to say that the, the sort of the objective of science is to be as as, as objective as as possible, and um, it's kind of drilled into you as a scientist. You know, you're not allowed to use the active voice; you've got to use the passive voice, and yeah, you know, everything's about making sure you don't put bias into um, into your experiments and stuff. Which is why you know, like medical trials are always they they always try and do double blinds. Um, mm that sort of thing. Whereas art is all about getting sub subjectivity mm -hmm. in things and get, eliciting an emotional response. 
Paul, that's a really interesting point, actually, because um, uh, I think there's actually been a movement in the art world towards science and away from emotion, uh, because I myself, I did, just didn't want to go to art school because I'd seen um, a documentary about, uh, I can't remember, was it Goldsmiths? And it was all modern art and... I think someone defecated in a pot in front of the examiner and then they got a really good mark and I was just like mm, I don't think that's my scene so then uh, I was looking into different avenues and after I uh, graduated um, from UCL I actually did a postgraduate with London Fine Art Studios and that's all about the atelier method and direct observation and it's taking inspiration from you know Leonardo da Vinci and all these really um, you know renaissance masters when as you say it's the science art overlap when they would look at anatomy they'd look at all of these different factors musculature and it was about how bodies were made up with a real kind of biological slant um, to properly convey in a realistic way how the body looks and how it functions um, and you, to do that you need to know uh, how a body's made up in terms of muscles, skeletons. So I myself in my kind of artistic world did kind of want to specialise that in more in the scientific area of art because the new maybe more emotional side of art um, just didn't really appeal to me. I, I wanted to do something well and I was like mm. Let's, let's just be really technically good at this you know I'm not sure I'm quite there yet but you know that was my ambition rather than making people feel things so yeah I think even in the art, art world there has been maybe this movement against uh, more modern forms of art. I will say that I think that not all activities which use art materials are productive nor are they always artistic so I think Paul I, we worked together for many years at the Wetland Center, and I know for many years you were not super for arts and crafts activities. Um, <laughs> and it's because I, I think in your mind, an arts and crafts activity was a coloring sheet. You sit and you do a coloring yes, sheet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, so I, I agree with your, with that sentiment in some ways is that just because you're using an art material does not mean that you're doing art and it doesn't mean you're doing anything particularly productive. And while I think coloring sheets have, have their place, like they're, they're useful for developing those fine motor skills. So it's, it's got its place. However, if you're trying to um, get across a particular scientific or an, an environmental concept. I will say that not all things are particularly good. Ironically, uh, we replaced arts and crafts activities with more forest schools influenced activities, which were uh, much more about sort of child-centered learning, which often had an artistic side to them. So we kind of replaced uh, what, what you always used to refer to as busy work, uh, with with something that actually was quite meaningful was was a really good learning experience so uh, yeah but yeah I didn't like the old arts and crafts sessions for me uh, it comes down to the objective of the activity so if if someone again wants to just keep children busy and there's you know no organization and just a lots of art a lot of arts and crafts looking things on a table I don't know that they're going to get you know a, a scientific lesson from that. Um, but I think it's, for me, art is great as a tool, you know, towards, that you're using towards an objective, not, and, and to be honest, you could have it stand alone because there might be an objective in that, but 
I think just aimlessly shoving arts and crafts that <laughs> children probably won't have, you know, the, the desired um, learning outcome that, that you may want. So I'm with you, Paul. <laughs> I agree. I think um, you can really misuse art um, in terms of it is a bit of a time filler. It's a, you know, oh, I need, you know, I need a cup of tea. Let's just get the kids doing some drawings. Um, and it, there's no kind of aim. A lot of what this paper describes is more on the art appreciation, like art literacy side of it. Like they're mm -hmm. using those skills of when you're looking at something artistic or when you're reading a poem, breaking it down, breaking it apart, and then using that kind of skill, applying it in a scientific context. Like that's a lot of what's going on, what's um, what they're describing. And uh, so there's, there's that side, which I think doesn't happen very often in environmental education anyways. Very often it's the other way around where you're, you're taking the scientific concepts and then you're taking maybe inspiration from that and applying it through an artistic medium. Um, so if you're learning about habitats, you might draw a picture of a habitat, you might paint a habitat, you might use mixed media to create a diorama of the habitat. And those are all, you know, really great valid ways of, of doing it because it's, you know, you do need to demonstrate an understanding of it or in a well-designed activity anyways, where depending on how the teacher is going to assess it, you know, you might be looking for the student to show that they've They've understood all the different components of the habitat, different niches that animals might live in within there. And then they've put those components in there. Maybe they've described it with an artist's statement. Like that's a well-constructed art activity that's based on the science. But mm -hmm. the step before that could also involve art. You know, you could be looking at other artists' works, looking at a habitat and then breaking it down uh, as an introduction to the topic maybe. I found that part really interesting where they talked about um, they were showing children pictures of a river and then they were taking them to the river later so that they'd already have those uh, observation skills. They, they will practice them and then they're kind of applying them. And I've, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, so like you were saying earlier, Victor, where you've seen the art go one direction, I've actually, same, I've never seen it go the other way where you're looking at the art first to then help you explore your nat this natural environment. And I, I think that's, that's a really interesting concept um, and one that I think could be e relatively easily applied in, in museum settings, but I haven't seen it done yet. Um, but it would be very interesting to see what that would look like. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Wall and Fowl and Wetland Trust on, on that topic, it uh, has a strong, there's like a strong arts connection there. Peter Scott, who's founded the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, one of his big passions in life was actually art. And he would often paint wetland scenes. It's interesting. There's a lot of potential. I think a lot of sites have that. A lot of artists and photographers do visit these outdoor um, wildlife reserves, outdoor education sites. Peter Scott's a good example because, you know, the art was kind of integral to the science as well. Because he did the big research project where he painted the beaks of the swans i can't remember off the top of my head if it was hoopers or buicks i think it was buicks because each swan has individual patterns on its beaks um so they could track which swans were coming back each year from those individual face patterns and he basically did it by oh, wow. portraits which is oh, uh, really cool. he used his skills as an artist to then inform his work as a conservationist, um, which in some ways, yeah, we don't, we don't make a, a, enough of. 
It's like people often forget that um, Beatrix Potter was a conservationist. And of course, she was also a very oh, talented I didn't know artist. That. Yeah, she was yeah. a mycologist as well, actually. Wow. So she so did she like basically famous. botanical illustrations <laughs> of, of mushrooms. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. No idea. Um, Charlotte? Yeah, I, I think it, art has, must have always played a role in these kind of like scientific discoveries and observations. So even sort of thinking about Turner and his kind of studies of the different skies and how the waves work, I'm sure it must have had some kind of influence. Yeah. And I actually came across, um, I also do painting events with sort of social sip and paint type events and lead those. And um, I've read into Van Gogh's Starry Night and apparently there's been some connection to um, where he placed the stars, it matched up with some astrological event that would have fitted in with when he was looking out of his window uh, of the asylum, painting that specific sky, or remembering to paint it, because he actually did it the next day. Um, so yeah, I think there must, something about an artist's observation skills, uh, there is some like untapped potential there in terms of scientific discovery. Um, a final thought that came out of this paper for me that I quite liked was they were talking about how when they introduced the topic they were talking about astronomy that was it and they were you might use a science the scientific method in order to investigate a particular question um, and one of the cornerstones of like the scientific method is right you've got to use like controlled experiments but when you're talking astronomy you have no control over these astronomical bodies, right? There's nothing you can do about it. So you can't do a controlled experiment. And so the question then is like, well, is astronomy a science then if you can't do these controlled experiments? And what they got the kids to start thinking about was rather than a scientific, the scientific method, thinking about the scientific process, which I think is a really important, important point because when you talk about the scientific method, you think more along the lines of a recipe, which is hence the, the title of this paper, Science Isn't a Recipe, you can't just follow it. It's more, it's a process. And when you think of a process, it's more of a, a way of working, which I think lines up a lot more with what science is in practice. And so it's that like systematic description, characterization, and it's also not a linear process, right? It doesn't, doesn't just go in a straight line. Very often, once you've made those systematic descriptions and those hypotheses, you go back to the beginning, you make more observations and see whether it lines up with your predictions from before. And then, you know, it continues in this iterative process, which again is not, it's not a, a recipe. It's not something you, it's a way of working rather than a specific do step one and do step two. Last question, has this paper made you want to try anything a bit different in your practice? I think for me, um, what really got me was the idea that, again, they'll look at a picture to then help them look at something that they might see in real life. So um, that, that's something that I, I'd be interested in trying maybe in some of our activities, because I think a picture is a lot less uh, intimidating, especially if you've got someone with language barriers or, again, learning barriers or any sort of communication barrier. If you're showing them a picture, it invites them to, they already feel that they can participate quite easily. And I think it would be very interesting to see that in practice, how that would work. And, um, and then bringing them to the gallery that maybe you've just shown them or the object that you've just shown them and, and just seeing what they think and what they pull out of that. And if they see more detail from that, or if they notice different things, I think that would be quite an interesting way to go about it because I've only ever experienced art 
um, and the sciences together in the sense of drawing objects um, from nature and doing the observation skills, which I think is so brilliant and so important that I, I'd be really interested to see it in reverse. My kind of takeaway from reading the article was I just found it quite bolstering. I think it might make me uh, feel a bit more confident going confident going into a learning environment and sort of being quite proud of the fact that I have an artistic background as well as my other experiences um, and expertise. I, I think in the past that might have been a bit sort of like, oh no, uh, you know, how did I get into the Natural History Museum when, you know, I'm did I not specialize in science enough to do this and everyone else is an expert in geology and astronomy and whatever else like how did I get here so I think um it's going to give me a bit of a boost in terms of I've got important experiences and abilities to offer that you know might make that learning experience much better for someone who comes in because I'll be able to see things in a slightly different way so I, I'd found it just generally quite bolstering that you can have one foot in either discipline Paul? I think that's my take-home point as well, that because, you know, I've spent so long thinking, oh yes, I've been pigeonholed, I'm a scientist, I'm a scientist, but actually, you know, people are a lot more complex than that, and there are other ways of looking at the world. I'd certainly like to try and bring some art artistic activities into, uh, into what we do, particularly the sort of idea of getting getting people to look at look at something else before they're moving on to um to the actual natural natural thing and trying to use art as a way of building up those describing tools that often people have but don't realize they have and they don't know how to sort of have the discipline to to do it so um yeah a lot of food for thought yeah definitely that's my my takeaway as well is not only do people not need to be so pigeonholed, you know, the different disciplines are more porous as the authors use, you know, things move from one into the other a bit more, but also the world is more complicated than that, right? There's, there's many ways yeah. to look at the world. Uh, and so it's useful to embrace them all, see what we can learn from each one. Yeah. Thank you all for joining me on in this discussion. I think it's been, I think it's been really great. Thank you. Thanks. Full show notes are available at our website at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. If you've got any questions or comments, please send them in to knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>